So good to be with all you guys today. And uh, in a few moments, we'll receive the offering. But before we do that, we're going to do something that we do every now and then around here. You're going to need a Bible. So I want to ask our host to come. And if you don't have a Bible, I want you to use one, take one. Uh, if you don't own one, it's our gift to you. Just put up your hand if you, if you don't have one. Every now and then, we like to declare what we believe about this important, awesome book that we call the Holy Scriptures. And uh, so if some of you have an electronic version of the Bible, that's fine. I want you to get your Bible ready. We're going to say some things together about this book that God speaks to us uh, through. And there's so many times uh, in my life, and I'm sure in yours, that you have heard God actually talking to you through His awesome, awesome Word. And uh, the words will be up on the screen, and we're going we're gonna to share them together. We're going to say them together. We're going to declare them together. So I want you to stand with me, and I want you to lift up your Bible in your hand. I want you to say this like you mean it, okay, like it's really passionate, like it's the most important thing that you will do in the next seven days. All right, can the words be up there? All right, here we go. Let's say it together. This is my Bible. It is the written Word of God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is true in everything it teaches and affirms. It speaks to me about the Father and salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. It shapes my heart and mind. It feeds me, instructs me, and shows me how to live. It reveals to me the things of the kingdom of heaven. And I claim right now the powerful promises in this book over my life and future so that I may know God, love God, and do what He says and today, I will be blessed through his word. Say amen if you believe it. Amen. amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Awesome. And hosts, you can come and receive the offering anytime that you're ready. We appreciate that as well. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the main passages today. Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 17 is where we're going. That's the main scripture passage. A couple others, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 9. And then 2 Kings chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And I'll highlight those for you later, but some of you like to turn in advance and get the pages marked. Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Kings 6. God really wants to get our attention. I hope we know that. And I hope that we're ready for Him to encounter us. Because He is a God who reveals. And He wants to show us, He wants to disclose to us who He is and what he can do. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of it, it shows us that God is a revealing God. And he also wants to reveal to us who we are and what he wants to do through us. And he even calls us to expect that something incredible, something impossible can happen through our lives when we believe his promises and step forward in faith in his word. Well, we're in this series that we have simply called Get Ready, because we actually do believe that God is about to reveal to us some amazing things about our destiny as a church. Last Sunday, Nathan spoke from Jeremiah 33, verse 3. I call that God's phone number. He says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. In other words, there are things that we don't know, and we will perhaps never know unless we call upon God, unless we seek His face. He's got things for us 
to step into, things that he wants to release through our lives. He wants us to prepare for them. And all of that calls us to position ourselves right now for a major outpouring of his grace and his power and his goodness. I am so uh, encouraged about what God, God is doing. I am so excited about what he's about to do that I can hardly contain myself. And in this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, we get to encounter the Lord in his word this morning in a way that I think is going to be very, very powerful. Let me read the passage for us from Ephesians 1, starting at verse number 17. And the words will be up on the screen. Here here it is. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Does that not sound big to you? Is that not huge? I think those verses are considered by many to be some of the most profound things written in the New Testament because of their lofty revelation, because of what they reveal. And God is a God who reveals things. He's the God of revelation. And the point is he wants to reveal even more to his own people. And that word revelation, we get the word uh, apocalypse from it. It's In the original language, it's apocalypso, and it means the lifting of the veil. In other words, when you go to a Broadway play or, or some kind of live theater, and you're there early, and you're sitting down in your seat, and you've got your ticket, and you're just waiting, you know, there's that hush moment when the orchestra or the band starts to play, and then the curtain is lifted, and you see scene one. That's what revelation is like. It's the lifting of a veil. Suddenly you see things. And it's God who does the revealing. I heard of an analogy that goes this way, that revelation is like this. It's like, let's say you've got an inheritance, and some realtor takes you to a, a, a mountain area and says, look across that valley. And you look across, and you see a, a beautiful mountain house on the other side of the valley. And the realtor says, that is your house. In fact, all that land is your land. Everything from the river to the forest grove to the trees and the home, it's all yours. What you're looking at is your inheritance. It's been revealed to you. And then faith is the journey down the mountain through the valley to get up the other side to take hold of your possession. So inheritance is what we have. Revelation is our eyes being opened to it, and faith moves us along the journey so that it becomes ours. I think that God wants to reveal things to us that are indescribable with words. It's revelation. It's his perspective on things. 
It's something that he has already promised to you, already given you, and he wants you to understand what it is, see what it is, and move into apprehending it. Now, some people get a little bit nervous in churches when they hear about Revelation because they, they think, well, now you're starting to add to the Scriptures. Isn't the Bible the authoritative, inspired Word of God? Yes, of course it is. People think that when you're talking about Revelation, you're going beyond the teaching of the Bible. The Revelation, you know, is, is over. All we got now is the Scriptures. Let me just say it clearly. All Revelation given must pass the test of Scripture. And if it goes against the clear teaching of the Bible, just throw it away. This book is the ultimate authority uh, concerning everything that we teach and affirm and, and morality and faith and lifestyle. And there should be no revelation that we receive that contradicts the clear teaching of the Scriptures. But the Scriptures themselves say that God continues to reveal things. We just read it in Ephesians chapter 1. That there's this ongoing, continuing aspect of, of God revealing things to His people so that they understand what has already been given to them. In other words, there's greater depths of understanding. So it's not new doctrine, it's not new truths, but it's that ongoing revealing of the continuing work of God to show us all these wonderful things that are ours. And so we can expect to receive a continuous stream of revelation from God for guidance, for insight, for understanding. And Paul the Apostle wrote about that like no one else. He, uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 12 and 16, talked about how God revealed His Son in Him. God revealed Jesus Christ through the life of Paul. God revealed to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't receive it by impartation from man. He received it by direct revelation from God. And he builds this deep, wonderful theology that for the believing community, for the church, there is some great stuff that God is going to continue to reveal to us. He will open up our eyes to, to it. He will lift the veil of our understanding so that we can comprehend it and receive it. And what we have here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 to 22, is really a prayer for revival. It really is. It's one of the most profound prayers in all of Scripture. And those of us who are longing for a full uh, occurrence of revival in this region, we should be praying through Ephesians chapter 1 regularly. And I believe that we can step into revival territory today, if you're interested, just by embracing the revelation of Ephesians chapter 1, 17 through 22. Let me give you some background on the Ephesian church. You guys okay? Good to go here? This was an incredible group of people. Paul is passionate about the Ephesian church. He, he kind of boasts about them. They had very high capacity to receive revelation from God. And that's, I think, because as a church, they were born in a revival moment. If you know the history of Acts 19, when the Ephesian church was started, um, Paul comes uh, up on the scene. He sees some, some disciples there. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? They said, we don't even know about the Holy Spirit. So he explains to them who the third member of the Trinity is. They receive the Spirit. They speak in tongues. And then he starts to disciple them for two years. There's some persecution there, but God's also doing some miraculous stuff it tells us there in Acts 19 that from Paul came handkerchiefs and aprons 
things that he was using when he was making tents, and they were so imparted by the presence of God upon them that people would take these handkerchiefs and give them to people, and they would be healed by touching them. That is written in your Bible. That's an impartation of God's miraculous power through some kind of physical symbol. Then there was the public burning of the scrolls, the scrolls of the occult in the city of Ephesus. The believers who were there were now convicted by the Holy Spirit that if they were going to walk with God into further territory, they had to get rid of all of their junk from their past. They did some soul care. And so they had a big bonfire somewhere in Ephesus, and they brought all their occultic paraphernalia, and they burned it. And a great revival erupted in the city of Ephesus. These were people coming out of idolatry, Artemis worship, Diana worship. And they were so profoundly touched by the Lord that they said, we don't want to hold anything back. Out of all of the New Testament letters and epistles, this is really the only one where there's no correction given to a church. They don't have problems like other churches to address. No squabbling, no immorality, no idolatry. They were known for their intense love. So Paul writes to them, and as one preacher says about this passage, Paul's writing to them, and it's like he's, he's thinking, what do you give a church that already has everything? They're already walking in so much favor from God. What do you give a church that has so much going for them? You give them a greater taste of heaven. And that's what Ephesians as a letter is all about. It's a greater taste of heaven. It's got some of the most lofty truths ever recorded in Scripture. When I was at Fuller Seminary uh, years ago, N.T. Wright, great biblical scholar, taught us from Ephesians, and he said this is the highest form of ecclesiology in the New Testament. This is the greatest portion in the Bible unpacking the doctrine of the church and its mysterious role to play in the heavenly realms. Why? Because so much revelation was given to the Ephesians. And because it's been given to them, guess what? It's been given to us. We can receive this revelation as well. Are you ready today for greater revelation? Are you ready for a greater revelation of the wonder and the power and the goodness of God? Are you ready for a, a greater revelation of how God is at work in this world through his body called the church? Are you ready for a greater revelation of who you are in relationship to all this, what your identity is and what your role is in kingdom advance? If you are and you're hungry for it, I believe you'll receive revelation. These were people who had already, uh, they had already received the Holy Spirit. They were already born from above. They had come into the kingdom of God through faith and repentance. And Paul is saying, hey, you Ephesians, you hungry, passionate believers, get ready. Get ready because there's more. There's more for you. You can step into it. You can lay hold of it. So we have a saying around here, and it goes like this, that we are all about continuous, increasing renewal where revival never ends. We're not just about revival. We're about continuous, increasing renewal that leads to revival that never ends. See, revival is the church being restored to its norm. It's not abnormal. Historically, it seems so, and everybody, you know, everybody would think, well, you know, about 100 years from now, there'll be another revival. Maybe we'll you know, be part of that. Well, you might not live that long. Um, but revival is the norm. It brings us back to who we really are and what we're supposed to be all about. And we're supposed to be ready for that. 
It's abnormal for the church not to live in a revived state. So we have to press into this. How do you get ready to enter into all of this? First of all, Paul shows us here, there's something to receive. And what you need to receive, he talks about in verse 17, it's the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation go together. And we know from Paul and his writings here in in Ephesians and chapter 3 and in other places, that what he's referring to here is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're talking here about the Spirit's work in revealing things to us. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 9 because we just want to anchor this a little bit further. There's, there's so many wonderful passages in the Bible that show us that God is a revealing God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9, words are on the screen. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. If we stop there for a moment, we might think, oh, it's so sad that we don't get to have those things. I, I want those things. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, if we could only know what those things are. Well, we can. Verse 10, but God. God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. God has... A lot of stuff to reveal to us because, he, because he's a revealing God. And he wants to give it to us through wisdom and revelation. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Literally in the original language, it's the next level knowledge of God. The epigenosis knowledge of God. Think of EpiPen, right? Super life-saving pen. Epi-knowledge of God. Next level understanding of God. And this reminds us that it takes God to get to know God. Did you know that? It takes God to be able to understand who God is. In other words, we will never fully understand God in our own humanness. We've got too many defaults, too many ditches. We are dependent upon the Lord and upon His Spirit to know Him. And so Paul says in verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. Literally, your heart the realm of the soul. It's not just talking about an intellectual knowledge here. But the, the realm of your inner being, that it would be enlightened that you would know him better. Paul is saying here that there is an enlightenment that is available to you by the God who reveals. It's a better enlightenment than Buddhism. Buddhism, in its pathway of enlightenment, will take a person into a dark abyss. Its promise of enlightenment always falls short. But true enlightenment, friends, true enlightenment comes from God through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. Enlightenment from heaven comes from above, from the living God. Paul is saying that 
enlightenment is available to you. Friends, today you can have your eyes opened. You can have the veil lifted. You can see the things that God wants you to see that you can't see with human eyes. He's a God who reveals. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 6. You know, God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit, can, can have a moment with you when all of a sudden you see things that you never saw before. Because sometimes we don't even recognize what God is doing around us. In fact, we're oblivious to it. You know, it's like you, you, you walk in a room and, and you didn't notice that someone was there and you find out later that they were in the room and you didn't even know that they were there. God can show us things that we miss. He can reveal things to us that we can't currently see through the ministry of His Spirit. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we have this really awesome story of Elisha the prophet and um, some of the episodes of his life, and it has to do here with the Syrian king who was you know, trying to position his army in battle so they could take over the Israelites. And everywhere he went, um, somehow uh, the Israelites would know where the king of Syria was putting his army, and then they wouldn't go there. And so the king is wondering, how is it possible that they always know my moves? And one of his servants uh, says to him, verse 12, uh, o, o king, Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I love that. Here's a prophet of God named Elisha, and he receives revelation. He sees and he hears what the king is saying in his bedroom, and he tells the king of Israel that. He says, you want to know what the king of Syria is up to? This is what he's doing. He's planning to ambush you. That's the nature of, of prophecy. Right? That's the nature of the prophetic. That's the role of the prophet, to be able to see from God, hear from God, and to receive ongoing revelation. And, and so Elisha has this ministry where he's helping the king of Israel, telling him where not to go. And then down in verse number 13, so he said, go and see where he is that I may send him and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. They're trying to pin down the prophet Elisha. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? You've got to get this picture here. Elisha the prophet has a mentoree. And, and the mentoree sees all the Syrian army all around him and, and the Israelites, and they're in trouble. They're going to be killed in battle. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Look around us. You ever feel like that, that you're just surrounded by the enemy? You ever feel so cornered by the, the, the host of the demonic world that you feel like he's going to take you out? All you see around you is intimidation. All you see around you is fear. All you see around you is blockages. But what you see with human eyes is not the whole story. Let's look at verse 16. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Verse 17, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And they take the Syrian army captive right after that. I want to remind you today 
on the basis of the authority of the Word of God that there is a revelation that is available to you right now that will show you that those who are with you are more than those who are against you. I want to remind you today on the basis of the Scriptures that no matter what you're facing as a believer, if you look to God, if you ask Him to open up your eyes, He will show you that you are divinely protected. He's got you. There is a lifting of the veil that can happen for you that will give you peace and confidence no matter what you're facing. You might think, I'm not going to get through this. There's no victory in sight. The enemy has me by the throat. No, he does not have you by the throat unless you give your throat over to him. Those who are with you are more than those who are against you. Wow. I believe that connects up to a whole lot of other teaching in the Bible on the role of God's great hosts, his angel armies, and how they camp around the righteous, and how they protect the believer, and how they minister to us in ways that we can't even fathom or understand. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. We're talking here about God revealing this to us. We're talking here about God's supernatural provision. We're talking about God's protection over your life, over your future, because he loves you. But you seldom see what you're not looking for. If you settle for just looking on the earthly realm, oh God, it's so hard, and it is hard, and you don't lift up your eyes and and have that revelation given to you about how powerfully he is in control of things, you'll wilt. The second thing in this passage in Ephesians is there's something for us to know. Actually, three things that Paul says we need to know about. Three things. Here they are. Hope, riches, and power. Hope, riches, and power. Let's talk about hope for a moment here. By the way, when the Bible talks about hope... It's, it's not talking about something fleeting. It's talking about something very, very strong and very, very powerful. Hope, riches, and power. We can know these things, not just with some kind of mental assent, but with a deep knowing that is at the heart level. Biblical knowing involves the soul. Jesus said in John 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Not knowing about God, but knowing God experientially. We're to know God in special ways. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Those are the three things. Hope, riches, and power. Let's talk about hope. When we use that word hope in our times, it kind of means wishful thinking, right? We say, oh, I hope I get my vacation dates approved. (laughs) Or I hope that um, I get that job that I need for the summer. Or I hope that Alexander Ovechkin will lift up the Stanley Cup. I I really hope so. I really want him to have that, Lord. 
I hope that Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors win the NBA championship. <laughs> Celtics, no. I hope that I pass my recent exam. I hope that that girl likes me or that boy likes me. We use that word hope fairly casually, and it kind of means wishful thinking. But that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is this. It is the joyful anticipation of good from God. Can you remember that? The joyful anticipation of good from God. And it's an anticipation based on certainty. It's not if God is going to come through. Of course he will. It's only a question of how and when. He's already committed to it. How and when, that's all we wonder about. Paul says that you might know the hope of his calling, the joy of it, the certainty of it. That you might actually live into that calling and, and, and be confident in it. I'll try to describe real hope in an illustration from my own life. It might help you a little bit. Um, when I was 16 years of age, I was about to get my first car. And this was a rite of passage in the little town that I grew up in, small town Manitoba. Uh, where I grew up, you were born, then you got a car, then you got a job, then you got a wife, then you worked, had kids, and died. That was the grand narrative of life in our little town. We all knew it. You're born, second thing, you get a car. And when you're 16, that's what we all understood back then. We were all supposed to get cars. So I'd saved up in my summer work, previous summer, about $150. This is in the mid-70s, to buy a car. My father knew that I wasn't going to make it, so he decided to help me out. My dad wanted me to get an, a, a car. And so we looked for a good used car, and we tried some out and, and uh, went to lots, and, you know, and we went and looked in newspapers and found a few, and none of them really seemed really good. And my dad didn't want me to get a junker, so we kept looking. It took time. That really bothered me because I wanted that car. I was 16. Then we found an ad in the local paper, and it said, 1966 Buick Special, one owner, 103,000 miles, $650. My dad says, did you see that ad? I said, yeah, but it's $650. He said, we need to go look at it. I go, okay. So uh, we go and look at this 1966 Buick Special. We test drive it. It was so amazing. It, it had the body and look of a Chevelle Malibu, you know? Uh, it had chrome hubcaps, Armstrong steering, perfect condition paint-wise. The seats still had plastic on them in the back. It had a Wildcat engine from a larger Buick, uh, and it was, it was loaded. It was loaded with everything. And uh, it had the Buick logo on the steering wheel. I'm like, oh, God, this is so good. Uh, I really want this car. And, uh, but it was out of our price range. I thought, I'm never going to get this car. My dad sent me away, and he went and talked to the owner, saw them kind of nodding and talking, and something was happening there. And my dad came back, and he said, we got it. We got it for $5.50, but you can't pick it up for a week. I'm like, no, <laughs> a week. He says, but it's yours. We got a deposit, right? We're going to come back and pick it up in, in seven days. He just needs it for one more trip. He has to make up north, and then the, the Buick is yours. I'm like, yes, yes. And so I started telling my friends, I've got a car. I've got a 1966 Buick Special, 310 Wildcat engine, two-speed automatic with chrome hubcaps. Suddenly all the 
18-year-old boys in the town, they're like, young Isfeld's getting a car. Hey, it's like you're growing up. It's like step two, buddy. It's really good. I'm like, yeah, step two. Well, when are you going to get that car? In seven days. It's waiting for me. My dad bought it. Okay, so it's for sure. It's for sure. I'm walking around in strength. My identity's changing. Suddenly I feel like a young man because I'm getting a car. You know what that is? That's hope. Living in the certainty of the reality of what's been given to you. The joyful anticipation of good. Seven days went and we went and picked it up and I went into a whole new chapter of life, a life of adventure and fun and danger. Lots of danger. That's hope. Hope gets realized in our lives when we activate it by faith. And there's extreme joy when you, when you step into the, the, the knowledge that this is really yours. Paul hinted at that in Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 13. It's, it doesn't use the word hope here, but it's really all about hoping in the promises. He says this, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is a guarantee, literally a deposit, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Wow. We are people of hope. And we also have this in our favor. We're to know about the riches. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we don't talk much about inheritance in church. Have you noticed that? You know, last 20 years or so, it's like, it's like a foreign topic that you, you don't talk too much about the inheritance that you have as believers. We should talk about our inheritance. We need to know what it is. And a couple things about our inheritance as believers. One is, it's future. And secondly, it's also present. It's both and in the scriptures. It's future. First Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says it's kept in heaven for you. Matthew 25, 34 says we inherit the whole kingdom at the end of the age. So there's, there's a futureness to our inheritance that we're looking forward to, the, the full consummation of it, but also our future, or sorry, our, our inheritance is realized in the here and now. To some degree, we can lay hold of it in the here and now. Look at Ephesians 1 at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been blessed. We have been given every spiritual blessing. Everything that you need for life and godliness has already been provided for you, and you can lay hold of that by faith. So you might say, well, I need more joy. It's been provided for you. I need more confidence in my in my believing in God. It's been provided for you. I need breakthrough in my marriage. God has provided the grace that is necessary for you to have breakthrough in your marriage. I need breakthrough in my business. God wants to bless your business. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. You just have to access them. You just have to draw them down upon you by faith. You might say, I need breakthrough in my kids. I need breakthrough at my work. God will give you the grace that is necessary to believe him for that breakthrough. But it gets even better because 
what we're actually talking about here is not our inheritance. Did you notice this? But it's the inheritance that the Lord gets to enjoy. It says it's his inheritance in the saints. We sometimes miss that. What do we get at the end of the age? We get eternal life. We get the whole kingdom of of heaven. We get all the blessings that God has for us to enjoy. What does he get? He gets you. He gets you. We're talking about a love relationship between God and us. And that's because there's a wedding coming up. I'm saying that because there really are weddings coming up in our church. But there's another big wedding coming up, and it's going to be awesome, it's going to be incredible, and it's the wedding between the groom, Jesus, and his bride, the church. And he longs for her, and he's waiting for her, and he's looking forward to the day of her readiness when he comes back to take her to be with him as his bride. It's not just that we get God when we get to heaven, but that God gets us. His inheritance in His holy people, in His saints. The Bible says that God is jealous for the Spirit that is within us. I believe it's an allusion to the Holy Spirit. It's like, bring her home. Bring the bride home. That's why the scriptures say on the last page, the spirit and the bride say, come, come. This great wedding banquet is going to happen. And when you get there, when you see God face to face, he will possess you. It's not just that you get him, but he gets you. You will be fully owned by God. There will be no distractions. There will be no greater affection than the affection between him and you. It'll be in its purest, most extravagant form. It's the revelation of romance, and it's incredible. So there's hope. There's the riches of his inheritance. One more thing. There's power. Wow. Power. Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is so ecstatic here. He uses four different words for power. It's like he's grasping. I think I'll use that word and that word and that one. He uses the word dunamis. We get the word dynamite from it, power. He uses the word energian, which means the working power which is operative inside of the believer. He uses the word kratos, which means mighty, and then he uses the word ipsos, which means strength. Paul's saying, you gotta know something here. You gotta know something. There is power flowing toward you through Christ right now, all because of his resurrection. In fact, this power is coming to you in such force, with such strength, with such incredible might, that God can do anything through you. There is no limitations. It's coming upon you and in you and through you. It's the same as the power of God that was used by the Father to raise his son from the grave. You do remember Jesus died. He died on the cross. His body was taken down as a corpse. It was lifeless. It was laid into a tomb. There was no brain activity. There was no pulse 
There was no blood flowing through him. In his humanity, Jesus actually died, not as an accident, not as a victim, but as a surrendered son of the Father to fulfill a divine plan to be the redeemer and rescuer of the world. He dies as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, for your sins, for mine. And then on the third day, he is raised to life by the power of God, the dunamis of God, the energian of God, the kratos of God, the ipsos of God, the power of God, the energy of God, the mightiness of God, the strength of the living God raises him up. And he is exalted to the right hand of the Father, sitting there at the right hand of the throne room of heaven. And then Paul says, that power that did all that, that power is towards you. It's flowing towards your your life. It's been dispensed. The power that raised Jesus from the grave is operative in our lives. And then it gets even better. Christ is raised to seat at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of heaven. Paul says in chapter 2 at verse 6 that we also have been raised with him, and we are seated in heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Where are we right now? Where are we spiritually? We are seated in heavenly places in Christ. Can you see it by faith? Can it be revealed to you? Can there be a lifting of the veil so you understand that's where we really are? And God has put all things under the feet of Jesus. All things in the demonic realm are under his feet. The devil is not greater than God. The devil is not like fighting with God as if God's going to lose to him. We're just in the cleanup stage of human history. The battle's already been won through the cross. Amen? It's already been won. And we are seated in heavenly places. And God put everything under the feet of his son. All authorities, thrones, dominions, powers, demons, the devil himself, all under the feet of Jesus. Where are you? You're sitting with him in heavenly places. You're alive in him. Where is the enemy for you? He is underneath your feet. Don't ever think that he's above you. Don't ever think that he has more power than you have. He's weak compared to you. We just don't believe it at times. So what does that mean for us? You cannot hear words like this and live a ho-hum life. You cannot receive revelation like this and ignore human suffering and pain. What then do we do? We go out in his name in the hope of our calling because God has called us by name. We go out in the hope of our calling, resting in our identity in him and stepping forward into our destiny as people through whom the power of God flows to change things in this world. Someone puts it this way, go find a problem and bring heaven to it. You're seated in heavenly places. You can do that. Invite our worship team up. And all of this becomes really conditional because of two little words in verse 19. And we're going to look at them next week in the final message in this series. Two little words in verse 19 which go like this, according to, right? According to. Two. In other words, this will never occur in my life if I don't receive not only the revelation of the power that I can have, but I also must live into it. We want to leave behind a powerless Christianity. We want to leave behind all the excuses of why we don't lay hold of our blessings, 
all the excuses of why we don't lay hold of our inheritance. We want to live in the hope of our calling and access the power of God in our life that is flowing towards us right now through Jesus. And so, if you want to see continuous, increasing renewal where revival never ends, if you want to live above in the realm of God's throne room, if you want to see yourself there by faith and believe for that, you'll begin to see God do incredible things through your life. Some of you are stepping into this quite boldly, and it's amazing and awesome. If you want to receive breakthrough from fear, shame, guilt, then just say, according to the power that is at work within me through Jesus Christ, I renounce whatever I'm facing. I make no agreement with it. And I ask God to set me free through his mighty, awesome, awesome strength. Friends, it's time to get ready for breakthrough. It's time to get ready for fresh new things that God is doing in our city. Some of us might just need our eyes open even more and our understanding enlightened so that we can enter into that great breakthrough that God has for us. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me and we're going to pray. Let's pray together. Are you ready for what God has for you? Can you sense it? Can you see it? I want to remind you that those who are with you are more than those that are against you. And I want to remind you that you don't have to live for a second in the shadows of God's love and faithfulness. By faith you can see Him and walk with Him in intimacy. Some of you maybe have lost your hope. You've lost your wind as a believer. You've lost your joy. You've lost your confidence in faith. God wants to restore that back to you today. So just, just ask Him to do that work in your heart right now. Say, Lord, I'm just asking you to touch me in my inner being. I'm praying that the eyes of my heart would be enlightened. I pray, God, that you would give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, to have an encounter with you, to know you, to be persuaded that you are able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we are asking and all that we are imagining. God, thank you. I yield myself to you. I'm asking you to do a deeper work inside of me. I'm asking you to set me free from fear, from shame, from sins, from mistakes that I've made, from regrets that I have. Set me free. Give me your peace, peace that passes all understanding. I pray that it would work through my mind and my heart right now. And I claim that over me. I thank you for it. And I boldly proclaim, Lord. I boldly proclaim, you are a God who reveals. 
and I'm hearing you right now. I'm receiving from you right now. Thank you for what you've shown me today. Thank you for what you've done in me today. Fill my heart with your presence. Make me dangerous for darkness. I ask in the powerful, resurrected name of Jesus my Savior. Amen. Amen.